Hello and welcome to The Field Report, brought to you by the students and staff of the NATO Field School at Simon Fraser University, an experiential learning program in security, defense, and diplomacy. In the NATO Field School, we bring students to learn about current events, issues, and decision-making directly from experts and practitioners in the field. And in this podcast, we hope to do the same for you. My name is Hannah Christensen. I'm the program coordinator of the NATO Field School, and I'll be one of your hosts for today's episode. In this episode, the NATO Field School travels to Vilnius, Lithuania, where the 2023 NATO Summit has taken place. This year's summit tackled questions of increased defense spending, the memberships of Sweden and, someday, Ukraine to the alliance, the strategic challenge posed by China, and the defining challenge that is climate change, all while being under 500 miles from Moscow. Expectations were high for Vilnius. It was vital for NATO not only to announce clear and substantive measures to meet their stated goals, but also show clear cohesion and unity as we approach the Alliance's 75th anniversary next year. So today we will discuss what decisions were made in Vilnius, what we expected to see, and what it means for the Alliance moving forward. To do that, let me introduce our panel. I have here with me my co-host for this episode, Ethan Clough. Ethan is a graduate student at McGill University and an alumnus of the 2023 NATO Field School. So Ethan, welcome to the Field Report and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Hannah. So Ethan, I know from your background and talking to you about why you joined the NATO Field School this summer that more of your academic work so far has been more theory-based. For me this year, it was particularly interesting to hear from our speakers in the field about what their thoughts were on what was at that time the upcoming NATO Summit. I'm curious from your perspective, how did the Vilnius Summit go? Did it line up for you with what you were expecting to hear uh, before the summit while we were in the field? Yeah, well, overall, one takeaway I had was how clearly the alliance presented a unified front. Uh, The communique very clearly lays out a divide between the liberal and the illiberal world. They did not shy away from specifically naming countries they see as challenges to peace in the North Atlantic region. Uh, Obviously, Russia is very clearly delineated as a threat, but Belarus is also condemned for their support of the ongoing invasion. Chinese actions are duly noted as coercive, and Iran is mentioned as well. Uh, It sort of almost harkens back to George Bush's famous axis of evil speech, and the alliance is very publicly demonstrating a divide between those on the side of individual liberty and the rule of law and those that are actively working against it. Uh, This, to me, sort of shows that member states are clear in their understanding of how the world is regressing back into blocks and with the Western world on one side and those who believe that they can come together to challenge the existing international order. Overall, it went more or less how I expected and was very productive overall for the alliance. That's really good to hear, and I'm I'm glad you, you pulled out some of those key pieces, I think, from the communique and... I think what people were really hoping to see from this summit, what was really important for NATO was to show that clear and unified front, um, given the the current uh, geopolitical landscape. Um, But to uh, start digging into that, uh, perhaps uh, a little bit more deeply and to learn more about some of our key takeaways 
from the Vilnius Summit. Um, we're going to turn over to our two experts who are here with us and who were on the ground in Vilnius during the summit and heard from many of the movers and shakers, I'm sure, from the event. So first, we have Dr. Alexander Moens. Dr. Moens is a professor of political science at Simon Fraser University, and he's held various fellowship positions where practitioners in security and defense work, such as being the first Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome. Um, most importantly, of course, for us, he is our NATO Field School founder and director. And the NATO Field School itself was actually honored to be selected as the Canadian institutional partner of the NATO Public Forum at this year's summit. So, Dr. Mullins, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be here, Hannah. We also have with us Dr. Toms Rostocks. Dr. Rostocks is the director of the Center for Security and Strategic Research at the National Defense Academy of Latvia. He is also an associate professor of international relations at the University of Latvia. His current research interests includes, among other things, deterrence, state intentions, total defense, and the relationship between public opinion and foreign policy. Dr. Rostocks, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to the Field Report. Thanks for having me. Okay, so. Um, with that, let's start with maybe the big picture um, and to get a, a quick snippet from you, I'm wondering if you could each tell me what your biggest takeaway was from the summit this year. So uh, Dr. Mowens, maybe we could start with you. For me, I found the tension going into the summit between Ukraine and the NATO membership and how that tension was resolved and how that ended in a specific phrasing in paragraph 11 of the communique, I found that fascinating, where Ukraine was trying very hard, uh, President Zelensky putting kind of strong words in his final message leading up to the summit, and the alliance coming out with a statement that looked very much like a, a kind of um, alliance, strategically little bit ambiguous solution, and then to Ukraine's membership, and then several people such as the then Secretary of Defense from the UK, Ben Wallace, coming out saying, Yes, look at the sentence, but um, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when Ukraine will join. So the whole question of when and if and how Ukraine will join NATO, for me, was the most fascinating piece to watch so close up. Excellent. And for you, Dr. Rostox, is this in line with um, how you were feeling coming away from the summit? I would say that um, although there were important decisions uh, taken at the NATO summit in Vilnius regarding uh, security of the Baltic states, that which is really my parochial uh, interest, but uh, I, uh, I I would have to uh, agree that uh, Ukraine was at the center uh, of the summit. Uh, there were Ukrainian participants uh, who um, who would uh, who would always um, redirect any discussion towards uh, Ukraine's relationship with NATO and uh, uh, Western military assistance uh, to Ukraine. There was um, uh, 
Uh, also, a lot of pressure um, from uh, Lithuanian um, side, uh, from the uh, hosting uh, side. Uh, for for example, uh, if if you want to take public transportation, if you want to take a bus from um, let's say airport to to downtown uh, Vilnius. Uh, there were these posters uh, which said something along the lines that, okay, while you are waiting here for the bus, Ukraine is waiting to become NATO member state. So we're, we're, we're both waiting, right? Uh, so I'm waiting for the bus and Ukraine is waiting for uh, uh, NATO membership, uh, which, is, uh, which is true. And uh, uh, it, it, so, so it was this uh, interesting um, uh, atmosphere uh, in uh, in Vilnius that, that there was uh, so much pressure, and uh, I, I I could sense that that there was this. Um, uh, uh, I I had mixed feelings about this because on the one hand I simply didn't see how NATO would be able to grant uh, Ukraine uh, NATO membership or even offer a a, a clear timeline uh, for membership. Uh, on the other hand, um, there was still this inkling that, well, maybe something will happen. Maybe leaders will be, um, um, well, maybe they will be courageous about this uh, decision um, uh, about uh, Ukraine's relationship with NATO. So, in the end, the outcome was fairly predictable. But, but, but there was uh, there was really a lot of intrigue in the air. There was, and. I was fascinated how Vilnius, how the Lithuanians, as you said, Tom, sort of took the lead. They weren't playing information as a defense. They were playing it as an offense. You mentioned it on the bus. I remember seeing on the bus, as you're waiting, so is Ukraine waiting for the F-16s. On that, I just wonder if we could dig a little deeper on this question of Ukrainian membership. Uh, some, including perhaps President Zelensky, who put out some tweets prior to the summit, were perhaps a little disappointed that the summit didn't go further on this question. Uh, many called for increased security guarantees for Ukraine, but what sort of security guarantees can NATO provide to Ukraine besides Article 5? Well, I I can, uh, I can take the lead with this, uh, perhaps. Um, so, uh, as uh, Professor Moens uh, already said, uh, the the outcome of the summit for Ukraine was uh, was fairly good, and they uh, the Ukrainians acknowledged that. Uh, and uh, there was uh, um, there was new um, military assistance package uh, announced. There was a separate meeting of G seven uh, leaders. And as the outcome of that uh, meeting, um, there was this statement which uh, contained uh, pledges that the, this statement basically begins the process at the end of which Ukraine will be given uh, some sort of uh, security guarantees. But um, uh, we... It, it, but it was also clear uh, from the perspective of even those states who are the most ardent supporters of Ukraine. So um, uh, you, Ukraine, uh, I, I think it was the Estonian uh, prime minister who said that, look, if we uh, give Ukraine NATO membership, we are in a state of war uh, with, with Russia and uh, would, would Western publics really be willing to send um, our troops to, to Ukraine, um, uh, to Bakhmut or um, uh, some some other um, uh, place where the where the fighting is ongoing, 
and um, uh, and uh, the the answer was clear that, that this is not happening. But I think the security guarantee is uh, is mostly about building a well providing military assistance uh in the short run uh to ukraine uh make sure that ukrainian uh, forces don't run out of ammunition uh that any you know howitzers that are you know uh, uh overused let's let's put it uh this way that well a howitzer is supposed to shoot a certain number of rounds and then uh, the barrel would have to be replaced, and they, 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 the howitzer would, would have to be, you know, repaired or, or replaced entirely. Um, well, Ukrainians are exceeding this uh, these limits by four, five, or six times. So we have to make sure that Ukrainians don't run out of uh, ammunition and weapons, especially given the fact that there's uh, there's um, uh, the counteroffensive uh, ongoing. And by the way, that counteroffensive was also providing a lot of context uh, for uh, this uh, relationship between Ukraine and NATO, because in early July, it was already clear that uh, this is not going to be easy. Uh, I think very few people thought that this would be easy, that the counteroffensive would be, would be able to achieve major uh, battle success uh, in, the, in the first uh, days or weeks. But it was clear um, that, that this was uh, really uh, difficult uh, for Ukraine. But I think the other uh, point is that, uh, that there should be a, a long-term uh, security and defense partnership uh, between uh, Ukraine uh, and NATO, uh, which also include well, F-16s are part of that, uh, as other uh, weapon platforms uh, are. Uh, and uh, this also includes the element of military industry, because uh, Ukraine needs to have its uh, own military industry, but to have, you know, some of the best military gadgets and the um, capabilities, Ukraine would have to partner with Western uh, military, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, companies. Uh, so the, both the short-term and long-term element of this. And whenever conditions are right, just, you know, make sure that Ukraine joins NATO as quickly as possible. You know, the Article 5 matter, as you raised it, Ethan, is was again really made salient at the summit because Ukraine was really saying, look, we've gone through the 1994 Budapest Memorandum and the security guarantees that were given there obviously did not mean much. And the only one that matters is the Article 5 of the NATO alliance and membership. And I think my sense is that all allies, um, or almost all allies, were in agreement with that. And the phrase, when conditions are met, was really the code for when the war is over. Because as Tom said, you cannot become a NATO member while you're at war because you put the entire alliance at war. So that's the code. Where the surprise came in for those that are like to comb through the tea leaves of these things, that's, that's one of the things I like, uh, is the additional phrase, when allies agree. And that one, surprisingly, and I don't know if you agree, Toms, um, that one seemed to be something the United States insisted on as well. So um, 
there was this second threshold, as it were, this second political safety valve that allies used. And I think it reflects what the Biden administration has been doing throughout, which is try to give near maximum assistance to Ukraine and at the same time keep an eye on the risk of escalation with Russia that may go towards a, a nuclear escalation. So there is this duality in the American position that I also found fascinating. They're very cautious. My sense is that any negotiations other than membership in NATO are going to cause tremendous difficulty with Ukraine. Ukraine is now set on membership as the only way forward. I I, I will agree that that this um, uh, that, that this additional phrase when allies agree that was uh, really important, but. But also, I think it's a, it, it's a sign of certain maturity uh, of the uh, members of, uh, of the alliance, which means that, for instance, if, um, well, it, it might be possible that at some point, um, the, uh, the active phase of military conflict comes to an end, but Putin is still there in Kremlin. And... Um, and there's a there's potential uh, for renewed fighting in the future for 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 the next round of hostilities. I think that accepting Ukraine in into NATO would become very very contentious uh, issue because if if allies would 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 have the sense that Russia will attack again in four five six seven years. Uh, then accepting Ukraine into NATO, there there will be a lot of um, opposition to that. Um, so um, uh, so pulling Ukraine into NATO against the will of a number of allies would be would would be a foolish thing to do. We've already seen what happened with uh, Finnish and Swedish uh, membership. That Sweden will likely become NATO member, but uh, but but the process has been delayed. And um, uh, you, you, the prospect of Ukraine joining uh, NATO may end up in bitter disagreement and the, and the crisis within uh, the alliance. So that is um, that phrase was um, it was a bitter pill to swallow uh, for uh, for Ukraine. But we we don't really know how we will look at Ukrainian Ukraine's NATO membership in let's say two, three, four, or five years. On that note, uh, obviously, Ukraine does not have Article 5 coverage, but Dr. No uh, Moens, I've heard you make a comment once that Ukraine has been provided far and away more aid than any NATO ally. I'm wondering if you could follow up on this a bit and discuss what that has to say about the role of de facto guarantees or better yet, security commitments. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating when you think for two minutes about what NATO has done for Ukraine, um, short of membership, but what it has done for Ukraine. And you look at the the quality and the quantity of it. Um, there's never been a country that has received so much military support, so much material, so much intelligence assistance, so much covert assistance as Ukraine. And in a way, 
it has really acted as a quasi-member state, not somewhere between quasi-member and proxy. I know this is pretty vague, but it's almost like it is already operating except for signatory to the treaty is operating like a NATO state. And to finish that story, even though I share Tom's caution and his cautionary note, I think to finish that story, even the alliance will likely not have any other options but membership. And when I watch the Germans and the French, and I find particularly the French position interesting here, where the French also are becoming more and more aware and more and more supportive of this solution, of a Ukraine in NATO solution to the whole end of this saga. So uh, meanwhile, we don't know where the conflict will go, but it points to a crossing of the Rubicon, in my view, between the crossing of the Rubicon in the sense of will NATO, will Ukraine become a NATO member? And my feeling, my sense is that decision is made. It will. And it's only a question of how big is this chunk of Ukraine and when will this happen? The Secretary General mentioned at this forum that Dr. Rostox and I attended, he mentioned right from the start that NATO had removed the membership action plan requirement, which is a very interesting uh, statement. So there was a lot of signaling that the there is something about Ukraine's membership that is going to happen that is far more specific than the very vague promise given to it in Bucharest in 2008. It's hard to move away from a, a very interesting topic, but I'm going to brutally transition up uh, to a little bit further north on our northeast flank, because uh, I'm curious to hear from you, Dr. Rostocks. You had an article come out um, in sort of the run-up to the Vilnius Summit discussing the, the current state of NATO posture on the northeast flank. So I'm wondering, uh, given that we have a Canadian academic and a Latvian academic, if um, we could start uh, to get into a little bit about the current state of the NATO Enhanced Forward Presences, or EFPs. Um, what did we learn about their next steps at this summit? Well, I think that a lot of the good news came out actually shortly before the summit. So the, the news about, uh, well, the message from Turkey that uh, the, that Turkey has dropped uh, its uh, objections to Sweden's membership. And uh, also, um, as, um, as was the case with previous uh, NATO summits, uh, we, we've had a, a number of um, high-level visits or meetings um, in, the, in the Baltic region uh, as well, including um, uh, the visit by a Canadian uh, Prime Minister uh, in, in Latvia. And um, uh, so, so a lot of statements were made already before uh, the summit. And um, uh, so one uh, one decision which was already made uh, a year ago in uh, in Madrid was that uh, NATO will 
um, transition from battle groups to brigades uh, in the in the Baltic region, and um, uh, I uh, and the, this pledge was reiterated um, um, both before and during the Vilnius summit. Even the, during the Vilnius uh, summit, uh, uh, Canadian Prime Minister mentioned even specific numbers that Canada will make this important uh, financial contribution, which will translate into a military contribution, security and stability in the uh, on NATO's northeastern flank. Um, however, um, this will take a lot of time. And um, also, it seems that, that there's some debate in Canada as well about defense spending targets, capability gaps and uh, other issues there's a there's a lot of um issues to be solved uh in the baltic states as well especially in latvia which is the case that i know uh best probably and um so for instance the um the military well the infrastructure where those additional troops will be housed uh where where they will be training and so on because the the current military infra infrastructure is full so we need to build more. So I think the the long story short is that we actually have not yet figured out how, in practical terms, we will get to those brigades uh, in the, in each of the Baltic uh, states. And uh, my 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 final comment on this will be that, um, okay. So NATO will strengthen its uh, defense and deterrence posture on it, on its northeastern flank. By moving from battle groups to brigades, but then we should also look at the scale of fighting in Ukraine. And uh, for this particular counteroffensive, Ukraine has created something like what nine brigades, and um, those are large brigades. It's not three thousand troops per brigade; it's it's more. And um, one brigade in each of the three Baltic states perhaps a brigade that will not be present at, at all times, that will go there for, for training. Well, that raises a lot of questions, obviously. On, on the Canadian side, we have been waiting for a very long time for Ottawa to say something specific about this. And... I couldn't help but noticing this summer in the NATO field school as we talked with military, diplomatic, political uh, folks in several NATO states that um, there was a sense that the Canadians were very cautious and were overall now seen as underperformers in NATO. And it's one thing to be sort of um, a, a country with good reasons to be selective about where to participate and how much, but it's another thing if you become, as Canada has become, among many NATO allies, uh, a laggard, someone who promises more then he delivers. And even The Economist wrote an article just recently uh, pointing out that this 
This is a, a, a clear problem with Canada. And I think for a member like Canada in NATO, somewhat medium-sized, a little bit on the small side of the medium size, far away, very important, um, it matters a lot if we are not doing what we um, are, are have promised to do. So, Prime Minister Trudeau said that there'd be 2,200 troops going to Latvia, not, didn't say when, and that there would be significant financial uh, expenditure made. I think he mentioned $2.6 billion, not over how long and how short. Um, but everyone watching Canadian defense, studying Canadian defense politics, knows that most of these promises tend to evaporate. And I'm not only saying by liberal governments, it, it, this tends to happen across governments. A big promise over multiple years, but what's left of it? So I noticed that there was a little bit of concern in Latvia about whether our beloved Canadian partners were going to step up to the sense that they were uh, hoping in Latvia. Now, remember the context. The context is this. When the Russians invaded Ukraine, their brutality, their complete terrorization of the local population, their war crimes are so terrible that states such as the Baltics are saying, look, we cannot afford to have a Russian invasion and then finally, months later, have some NATO troops come in and push them back out. We must avoid the invasion in the first place. And the only way to do that is to have significant forces right there on the border, not just tripwire forces, but significant forces. So the concern by the, the Baltic states is real. And I'm hoping that the Canadians will see that our commitment there has to remain real for it to matter. Otherwise, NATO will have to make it up in by other means. And... I, I will add to this that once once you look at the relationship between the three each of the three Baltic states and uh, each of the three framework nations, then um, uh, each Baltic state has chosen a slightly different approach in its relations with the framework nation, and um, the um, Lithuanian analysts are well. Lithuania has been very vocal. Uh, regarding its um, determination to make sure that there that the German brigade is actually in Lithuania, that it's not just a German brigade somewhere in Germany, which will you know move towards uh, uh, Lithuania uh, if if there's a, if there's potential for uh, armed uh, conflict. So Lithuanians have not shied away from uh, criticizing Germany at times exerting a lot of pressure. And uh, partly this has been up based upon uh, recommendation by some of the German analysts that who have basically asked that, well, unless you put a lot of pressure on Germany, nothing will happen. So you have to push. Um, Latvia's appro approach has been a lot more cautious in this regard. Uh, and um, um, I, I think this is unlikely to change in future 
unless there's a there's a clear understanding that uh, Canada is uh, uh, not delivering uh, at a at a certain point. Yeah, sort of to add on to this, I know from my my experience in Latvia, both last year and this year, there was definitely a sense of a little bit more pressure um, on the Canadian side to deliver. But then again, like you said, from the Latvian side, actually branching out in, in, in a lot of ways, um, rather than putting that pressure directly on Canada, perhaps actually looking at um, other allies that could be supportive in the area. I mean, the Latvian EFP is already the most uh, multinational of uh, all of the battle groups at this point. And I'm curious maybe to, to follow up on that, looking at our new landscape in the north uh, eastern flank of NATO. We ha- now have one new ally and, and possibly two quite soon. So um, what is your sense, Dr. Rostock, so far on how um, the inclusion of Finland and Sweden into NATO might change um, the, the situations for the EFP, specifically for Latvia? Well, um, I, I think, first of all, it, it changes the uh, security landscape uh, in Northern Europe. On the one hand, it was clear that uh, Finland and Sweden, their forces were largely interoperable with, uh, with other NATO, uh, with NATO allies. Uh, but, uh, but, but on the other hand, it was uh, hard to imagine that in the case if Russia would move, into the Baltic states, that Finland and Sweden would respond militarily right away. So um, I I think that uh, Swedish, uh, well, Finnish and potentially Swedish uh, NATO membership, that uh, changes a lot in logistic terms as well. Uh, There's been a lot of concern about how NATO troops would move into the Baltic region. Um, And... um, well, Swedish and Finnish NATO membership makes uh, the Baltic Sea um, more of a NATO uh, lake, uh, I would say. Um, regarding uh, the EFPs, I think there's um, it's it's not talked much about at this point, at least publicly, uh, for reasons that are easy to understand because Sweden is not yet in uh, in NATO. But uh, I think that both uh, Finland and Sweden are ready to contribute to um, uh, to EFPs uh, in uh, in the Baltic uh, states. The question is um, where uh, and uh, what that specific uh, contribution uh, would be. On that, I think we'll take another hard transition here and jumping off from our sort of previous discussion on defense spending, I'd like to link this back to China a little bit. So Dr. Moens, in a recent Ipsos poll, 75% of Canadians agreed that Canada should increase defense spending. For 71%, this was directly related, uh, responding to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but for 69%, they cited China's actions in the Taiwan Strait as a primary concern. Uh, Of course, within NATO, the current focus is mainly on the alliance's eastern flank, both because of the pressing nature of the threat, but also because of the weaker agreement between allies on how to address challenges from China. What did we learn about NATO's position on China at this summit? NATO reaffirmed, mostly in official language, um, the status of China as a threat 
sorry, as a challenge, sorry, sorry, big difference, <laughs> um, as a challenge, and reaffirmed that China is a challenge approaching even European, direct European security matters, such as information security, infrastructure, at, uh, investments. But the real movement regarding China and NATO at Vilnius, in my view, is not in the language or in new language, but rather in the ongoing closeness and the ongoing movement to closer cooperation on more salient security matters. So key states like Japan, South Korea, Australia were at the summit. The NATO alliance is discussing with individual uh, states around China uh, potential further cooperation. Already some 10 years ago, there were various discussions between NATO and its uh, partners across the globe to cooperate on cooperative security matters. And this now is moving towards more mutual security matters. And you see this clearly uh, in some of the direct liaison between Japan and NATO, even though the French president insisted that there be no open, overt office of NATO sitting in Tokyo as of yet. I think it's a matter of time, by the way. Um, so there is enormous debate in Europe about this, and uh, the vast majority of NATO members, I believe, are very reluctant about being drawn into a simple American-Chinese uh, contestation. But there is also an enormous awakening in Europe, as those Ipsa, Ipsos polls numbers show about Canadian public, um, about the threat that various Chinese approaches pose to European countries as it does to Canada. For example, the infiltration of Chinese police in Europe is a story. Um, the influence operations politically as well as on in other economic matters is a big story. So I see the NATO and Asia-Pacific fellow democracies relationship gradually uh, tightening. And that this relationship will not mean that NATO goes global in an direct sense, but it does mean that more and more compatibility between what NATO does and what these Asia-Pacific allies do or partners do uh, will, will get more and more intense. Well, China is uh, less of a, of a, of a concern uh, for, uh, for Latvia, um, but uh, I, I have a couple of things to add. Um, First of all, I think that um, what we have seen in the case of Russia is that a country has openly 
try to build try to become a military superpower they did not really succeed in that but they but they tried to do that and um analysts were wondering well why does russia need that military power well to use it and there's uh, there's a similar process ongoing with china as well and china is uh becoming or perhaps already is a military well it's it's a military great power will perhaps become a military superpower uh in the in the coming decades and uh, why are they doing this well the point is that once they have that instrument they will use it at some point uh, so uh, so that's one thing but but the other thing is i um i i get a sense that there's uh, Partly, caution, the caution on the uh, on the part of United States and uh, NATO uh, in general regarding uh, China is related to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Because China, if China provided, well, supported Russia more decisively, it may it may yet choose to do so. If China would support Russia uh, to to a much greater extent, then that could tip the balance uh, in uh, in in Ukraine clearly uh, in uh, in Russia's favor. I'm I'm not saying that this would be easy an easy thing uh, for for China to do, uh, but uh, but that is certainly uh, th there's certainly a little bit of caution on the part of NATO because uh, it makes no sense to alienate uh, China uh too much uh at at this point because if uh if the chinese leaders conclude that you know whatever rift in re uh, relations between china and the west is deepening well they might as well deepen that rift right now without much hesitation and uh and that would be very bad news not just for european but for global security Thank you so much to both of you. I think keeping an eye on the time here, it is just about time for us to wrap up. But I really appreciate uh, all the comments that you've given from your perspectives, particularly actually being on the ground in Vilnius during the summit. Um, one thing that's really stuck out to me as a common thread throughout um, your responses is Dr. Rostock mentioned early on sitting at a bus stop and seeing this sign saying, you're waiting for the bus stop while Ukraine is waiting to join NATO. I think based on what you've talked to us about so far, I think that the the analogy doesn't work. It's it's really seems to be the opposite. I don't think that either Ukraine or NATO or the allies are really waiting on anything. When you're at the bus stop, you've done all you need to do. You just need to wait the bus to come to you. And that's really not the case for a lot of the issues that we're seeing today. And I'm glad to see some, some cases where we're really um, going towards them and making the, the changes and the actions that we need to um, as an alliance. So thank you both for your time today. I feel we barely touched the surface of things. We could go on for hours, but I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you again to Dr. Alexander Mowens, Dr. Thomas Rostocks, and Ethan Clough for joining us, and an extra special thank you to the NATO Public Diplomacy Division for their support. We were honored to be recognized as the Canadian Institutional Partner for this year's Public Forum. This episode of The Field Report was presented by Hannah Christensen and Ethan Clough. Our producer is Solomon Rogers, who also created our lovely theme song. 
The Field Report is part of the CDSN Podcast Network, which features other excellent podcasts, Battle Rhythm, Conseil de Sécurité, and Security Scape. On behalf of the NATO Field School, thanks for listening, and we'll see you here next time.